Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast, where we illuminate the life science career opportunities outside of academia through the experiences of those who have been there before. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission full catalog of episodes. My name is Roshan Chickermain, co-director of alumni relations at Hopkins Biotech Network, and I'm joined here with our co-host. Hi, I'm Jenna Glatzer, editor-in-chief of The Transcript for Hopkins Biotech Network. Our guest today is Bernat navarro Serrer. He's the Eastern Hub co-chair of the National Science Policy Network, and he's also a PhD student at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us, Bernat. Hi, thanks for having me. Right, so let's get into your early background and how you discovered science before we get into the science policy. So where'd you grow up and how'd you discover science? How'd you get interested? Yeah, so I grew up in Barcelona. My family has always been very interested in science. Um, Both of my parents are nurses and my sister, she uh, is a veterinarian, but then she also did a PhD in immunology and in cancer immunology. So um, I've always been kind of surrounded by that curiosity about scientific topics. And so growing up, I kind of have an idea, I had an idea that I was going to pursue some kind of career in science. And so I actually moved to the U.S. Um, when I was 18 to do my undergrad. I was studying biotech and biochem at Worcester Polytech Institute in Massachusetts. Um, and right after that, I came to Hopkins. Um, and so during my experience uh, at WPI is when I started doing some research, um, worked uh, in our research lab, and that's what kind of got me going um, and kind of got me interested in the research portion of science. And that's why also led me to a decision to do a PhD. Awesome. You want to introduce us briefly to what your PhD thesis work is about? Sure. Um, So I'm a third year PhD candidate uh, in the program of cellular and molecular medicine at Hopkins. And so I work in the lab of Dr. Wood. We study pancreatic cancer and specifically my project deals with uh, how pancreatic cancer invades. Um, we actually use human samples and we're able to actually derive organoids from these samples. And so we can really study in a 3D model uh, how these organoids invade and how these cancers invade and understand also what mutations uh, do to these invasions uh, and whether uh, we can identify some targets that could stop um, this invasion of these cancers, um, especially because pancreatic cancer is a very aggressive disease. Um, and so uh, a lot of the research is also focused on, on just kind of preventing um, these aggressiveness. You do a lot of work actually for science communication as well as policy work. And so in addition to your role with the National Science Policy Network, you're actually the communications chair for Johns Hopkins Science Policy Group. So can you talk a little bit about what your role in each organization is and how they relate to each other? Sure. So 
as I said, yes, I'm very involved in uh, these two groups uh, that work on science policy. And so I first actually got involved with the Hopkins Science Policy Group. Um, I got interested uh, because there was a proposed tax code uh, by this administration uh, that wanted to tax grad students by the full tuition uh, and not per se what the stipend that we received. And I, I saw that there were a lot of campaigns to get signatures and to write to um, really express our opposition to this uh, tax reform. And that's what really got me involved in science policy. And I discovered the group at Hopkins. And so as a communication chairs there, I mainly do all of the outreach. Um, so I, I coordinate all the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, as well as the actual website that we have and try to promote the work that we do uh, in the group. Uh, we try not to be partisan. We always want to just be objective about our interest in policy and we encourage always our members to express their opinions through policy and not per se political stances. Uh, and so we do have a blog, for example, in the website. So we encourage other members to write about topics that might be currently happening uh, that are of interest. So that would be my role in the Hopkins group. And as you said, I'm also involved in the National Science Policy Network. This is a nonprofit network that really wants to connect different student leadership groups. Uh, so the National Science Policy Network is composed by different chapters. So we, as the Johns Hopkins Science Policy Group, uh, we're part of NSPN. And so NSPN really provides this network that fosters collaboration. Uh, there's also a lot of resources that are uh, available for these early career scientists that are interested in science policy, advocacy, diplomacy. And so really is just a very collaborative network. There are different like channels basically in different comedians. And so people can find other students, uh, graduate students, postdocs uh, that are in person in Baltimore. There can be anywhere in the nation and really collaborate in topics that are of mutual interest. So there are people that are interested in science diplomacy, people that are interested in graduate education. And so certainly it's a great uh, nonprofit. Uh, and basically the leadership of all of the groups that fall into the Eastern Hub. And so we really try to establish a communication between the directors uh, and the different chapters, uh, understand what are some of the needs that the chapters have instead. And in terms of providing resources, maybe different uh, professional development opportunities, and really trying to move forward the NSPN goals based on what the members uh, really want to get from this nonprofit. And have you had a chance to actually go to Capitol Hill and advocate some policies? And can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like? What policies were you advocating for? Sure. So I can definitely talk about that. I have been in Capitol Hill a couple of times independently from NSBN and the Johns Hopkins Science Policy Group. So many scientific societies actually offer 
pill base in which uh, there have advocates, either students, patients, or professionals that really advocate for a specific topic. And so I am part of the American Association for Cancer Research, ACR, and they have an early career at Hillbay. And so I was part of a cohort of 10 to 15 graduate students that work in cancer research from many different institutions. And we went to Capitol Hill to advocate for increased funding for cancer research. So uh, it was definitely a very interesting experience. It really makes you think about many things. First, how important it is to be able to communicate, not just your research, but also be able to communicate with policymakers and congressional staffers. Importantly, also, it reminds you that science is funded because Congress approves it every year. And so how it is important that we as students, as scientists, remind the policymakers and remind the public how important scientific research is and how even if your you know, your representative for your district is really, really in favor of funding NIH and funding NSF, it's always good to remind them once a year or twice a year that you're still there and that you're still going to advocate for cancer research and that, you know, you also appreciate their help, right? They are the ones that are there voting for an increased funding for agencies. And so it's always good to create some kind of relationship because then you become someone that they can rely on, not just for this topic, but for other scientific issues. That sounds awesome. So I'm just curious to know what types of work specifically does someone working in the area of science policy do? What does it look like? Is it petitioning? Is it being on an advisory board? What exactly does that entail? I don't think there's a straight answer to that. And so science policy is very, very, very broad. I always like to differentiate two different types of science policy. So one being policy for science and the other one being science for policy. And so policy for science, it would be the actual application of policy to regulate how we conduct science. And then you have more science for policy in which you use science and scientific evidence to inform policymakers and then inform policies uh, regarding, you know, climate change, water and air quality, you have e-cigarettes, transportation. And so there is a really broad category of issues that you can influence and more than influence, I would say, inform with science. And so a career... In science policy, really will vary depending on where you work. And so there are people that work in government. And I think that's usually where people associate science policy with government. And so it can either be in Congress. There are many committees that really oversee a lot of the bills uh, that will then be voted in Congress. And so there are a lot of uh, policy advisors there and science policy yeah, advisors. Um, but there's also People in science policy that are more interested in topics that are more international. And so you can think about science diplomacy. And so there are different topics of public interest, especially now with COVID-19, in which interactions and cooperation between countries is very, very important. And so 
there are some people that go to a more science diplomacy field, but there's also, you can work in scientific societies, you can work in nonprofits. Uh, other people really like working in topics related to scientific workforce. So how do we train graduate students? How do we actually build our scientific curriculum? You know, are we doing enough regarding science communication? Are our students able to communicate the research outside of the scientific peers? And so I think science policy is broad enough that everyone can explore their interests and most likely find a place that they can work in their passion um, and really intersect science and policy in their day-to-day work. Uh, but I think also as a scientist, I think just being able to engage with the public, that sometimes I think is enough. I think we tend to focus a lot of talking science with scientists and not talking science with the public enough. And I think now with the coronavirus, you can see how important it is to communicate science to the public. And sometimes it's not science that you work on, but I think if you are you know, the friend, the daughter, the husband of someone, and that is a scientist, I think you become the reference point sometimes for a lot of conversations. And so I think you can still engage with scientific conversations and try to really engage the public in not just being curious about science, but also informing their decisions based on scientific evidence. And I think this is something that we as a scientific community is responsible for because no one else will do it. Uh, and I think the not doing so really exacerbates the power that misinformation and non-scientific evidence can have in people's opinions. And I think it's not, you know, it's, it's not only educating people, but it's also informing decisions that in the long term, those people will make. And so it's educating someone about science isn't just short-term, but it becomes a long-term process and really appreciating the effect that science has in their day-to-day life. So I think independently of where you work, I think you can still have those conversations. You can still um, push yourself to have those conversations with the public, with a family member, with a friend, whoever it is. I think just one conversation is more than a lot of people are doing. So definitely helps. Yeah, and I feel like most of I'm not a great science communicator by any means, but I think, you know, I I try. And I think most of those skills, before I even knew that there was any sort of formal network for this, came from just talking to my family members because I, I did it really forces you to understand not only what you're telling them because you want to protect them and make sure you're giving them the right information, but also for yourself, you need to understand this information very well and also be able to get that across in a very clear manner that is accurate and doesn't inspire fear and it's based on fact and yeah it's it's definitely challenging and i'm really glad you brought up that point i think it's so critical yeah and i think you know we as a scientist don't know everything 
And I think being able to say it and being able to be honest about what we know, what we don't know, what could change as we learn more, I think doing that can ease people's minds. I think there's a lot of, you know, oh, scientists got this wrong. Scientists got this other thing wrong uh, because we always want to say something for sure, but we should be comfortable also saying the things that we don't know um, so that then people don't lose the trust that they have uh, for scientists and for scientific evidence. And so, you know, as you said, I don't think I probably appreciated enough what science communication is or how important it is. And I always kind of like related it to, oh, if you want a career in science communication, then you should know how to do it. But why should I care? And why should I do it? And so I think doing a PhD, you know, being involved in policy, I think it really highlights the importance of science communication as a skill to have while you are being trained and while you're going to grad school, that is going to be an essential key for any scientist, regardless of the career that you want to pursue. So I want to get into this topic of why should anyone who's studying science or even interested in science should care about science policy. There's a really good point that I think you brought up in this perspective piece um, called Don't Be Fooled Science is Political. And that's that scientists are somewhat prone to believing that the world is somehow automatically fair and that the truth will always win in the end, no matter what. But the world, unfortunately, doesn't quite work that way because a lot of the decision making that ultimately shapes public policy is a very human process. And human behavior, whether it's a scientist or a non-scientist, is often error prone and it's somewhat biased and illogical. So even when policymakers have the best of intentions, they may not be totally informed in their decision making. So I'm just wondering, um, are there any examples that really have stuck out to you just in thinking about science policy, perhaps areas for improvements in which you believe science has inadequately informed policy and maybe requires further advocacy? Sure. So I think, uh, as you mentioned about my piece, that um, science is political. One example, I think, could be climate change. We know about climate change for a long, long time, and yet here we are. And I think, you know, I think there's a lot of signing different agreements and signing uh, different proposals just so that the public sees that they are doing something, yet in the long run, there are not enough policies to make those agreements be achieved in time. As you said, science doesn't happen in a bubble. Science happens in a world where there's a lot of different interests, where there is a lot of other powers that will push for specific agendas that sometimes contradict scientific evidence. And you can think also about other topics like stem cells. They have been really a controversial topic. And I, I believe they were, by previous administrations, they were restricted their use. And so I think you can see how the scientific community is shaped by those political decisions. I think when, and I think this relates back to when you advocate for funding in um, scientific research, I think storytelling and really bringing personal stories 
uh, in these conversations really help because then those are the stories that they will remember. And I think, you know, luckily, I think funding for research has been always a topic and an issue that has been very bipartisan, especially because everyone is affected, for example, by cancer, right? We always, everyone knows someone that has been affected um, by cancer. And as you said, you know, it's those personal things that happen to politicians, to policymakers that really champions them to care about a specific cause and really put their efforts to get other people on board. So I think it really is important that we have those connections and those conversations with policymakers. We've been talking a lot about how all sectors of science really need to work together in order to accomplish, you know, comprehensive policy agenda. And that means working with legislators. But I want to talk about more of a local issue that's relevant to us. You recently had an op-ed piece published in the Baltimore Sun back in April called Make It Easier for Academic Research Labs to Test for Coronavirus. So can you briefly talk about what your thesis of that article was and why you strongly believe that academic research labs were in a unique capacity to test? Yeah, I, I want to start by saying that actually it was thanks to NSPN that I published that op-ed. There is a great team of editors that are more than willing to help. And so, as you mentioned, yeah, I published the piece. And I think what motivated me to write it was how little tests that were being done in the U.S. So I think one of the pieces that really struck me that I read in the news was this lab in Seattle that was studying the flu. So it really was a lab that was very equipped to study infectious diseases. And they wanted to really help with the outbreak that was happening in Seattle. And they thought, you know, we're just going to make this test. We are going to start testing people we got samples from. And uh, surprisingly, and unfortunately, they actually discovered a positive test, I believe, very, very few days after they started testing. And so they decided to actually report the case. Uh, and it really helped. I believe it was a student from a high school that was positive. And so that led to actually shutting down that high school. And so I think, you know, the implications of their work were huge in really understanding the magnitude of the Seattle outbreak. And I really thought, you know, reading the piece and how her lab was then told to, you know, stop doing this test uh, really struck me because I felt there wasn't enough support to have everyone help. And I think that, you know, of course, not all academic labs are in a position that they really can help. But I do think that there are labs that they work, not just on coronaviruses, but other viruses, the flu that really have not just the equipment needed, but also have the staff to actually roll out a test or even do testing. And, and so I think I spoke about how, you know, there really needed to be a easier way to approve these labs that are 
either designing tests or that want to help with testing. My main focus of that piece was really to highlight how we as scientists can really help to really ramp up the testing and make sure that enough people are being tested every day. Yeah, so something that fascinates me is how applicable some of the skills you learn as a scientist are to other industries. So are there any lessons that stuck out to you that you learned throughout the course of your PhD that you find surprised you that applied extremely well to science policy? Yes, actually, and I'm glad you bring this topic because I think, you know, you do a PhD, you really are learning about a very, very, very specific topic. But I do think that there are definitely skills that are valued in a career, for example, in science policy. So I do think that the ability to critically think, the ability to communicate, the ability to work in a team, and also just sometimes face uncertainty or, you know, a problem that's unexpected. I think those are skills that maybe we don't realize that we have and how able we are to really use that in different settings and having other experiences outside of lab really highlights how important the training that you're getting is and how applicable these skills will be in a career that maybe isn't per se academia. So I also want to circle back to something that was brought up in an earlier conversation, and that is the importance of science communication. So do you think that scientists should do more to go out there and interact, not just with the scientific world, but with policymakers and other decision makers? Yeah, I think you bring a great question. And I think that science communication should be probably part of our curriculum, our training curriculum. And not just, as you said, to other scientists, but really understanding that your messaging, your framing will change depending on your audience. So I do think that that is basically a learning curve. It's not something that you can read a book and then you're you're done, you're good, you know how to do it. Uh, so it takes time, it takes practice, it doesn't, you know, happen in a competition. Um, and so I do think that that is important. I think it's key. And I think it's going to become way more important in the future. We've seen it again now with this pandemic, how important it is to be able to effectively communicate. Um, and I think if it's something that we were exposed to earlier, I think people will understand better its value and how meaningful it can be. Yeah, I think you bring up a great point because I think as especially PhD students, we get kind of stuck in a loop in terms of the people we talk to. Like maybe our we talk to our lab and present for them in lab meetings. Right. Or you know, we talk to our family or friends who aren't scientists or maybe don't have the same training as us or they're even in a different discipline. And you just kind of you sort of have a list of information at all times of what you know these people know and what you know these people know and what they don't know. And then you get into a new room and all of a sudden, like I had to give a presentation to a different group that was very mixed in terms of like people were computational, um, others were bench scientists. And I think it's really up to our mentors, especially like the PI at the end took me aside and was like, oh, that was good. But, you know, here's this commonly used genetic mouse, genetically manipulated mouse line that you referenced that this person will have never heard of or never used. And you, it's little things like that. 
because you talk to the same people from day to day that you you just don't think about. So I think there is also a responsibility on the part of our mentors to be cognizant of that and not just when we're, you know, maybe going to present because that happens like once or twice a year. Yeah. So it, I'm really glad you brought that up. Right. Uh, I think we got we got to start communicating more. I think there's a lot of talk out there in uh, the public space about echo chambers. And it's not just with uh, liberals or conservatives. It's actually scientists and non-scientists. I often find that in scientific discussions, for instance, in, in a climate change or some other topic that, that touches science in some way, the scientists and the non-scientists are almost speaking a completely different language. The scientists are coming in with facts and, and data that is very important, but there's this other side, which is there's an emotional aspect to it. How is it? How do those facts uh, become personal? And how do those personal connections power us to think a certain way or maybe realize a new perspective? I think that's often lost in discussions of scientific topics that people are not leveling with each other they're speaking different languages i think the scientists and and the physicians need to come in with a little bit more empathy on the other side and likewise on the other side um, trying to understand the facts and the things that are happening that are coming out in the data that's being presented uh, so how can someone in the life sciences do more to communicate their science to others and and have these kinds of conversations what recommendations do you have for them i would say if you're you know if you're interested in maybe educating kids there is a program that's called skype a scientist in which without the pandemic it was scientists talking to a classroom but now the kids are at home it's actually one-to-one -one, and so you get to talk about you know whatever you're passionate about i think it takes a little bit of effort to really push yourself out of the box. But again, it's all practice. Do that initial step and then you'll start finding things that you love about science communication and then you'll become more comfortable. So um, I would say, yeah, just just go for it. That actually reminds me of, of one thing that I've heard uh, Bill Clinton saying now that we're on the political subject. He said, everyone has a story and everyone's story deserves to be told. So... I think that go out there and tell your story, go out and share your perspectives and have conversations, go out and find those organizations that are doing those kinds of work that you believe are impactful, think tanks, foundations, nonprofits. For someone who's actually interested in engaging the National Science Policy Network, how can they do that? Um, they can go to cypolnetwork.org. Um, they can also contact me, I guess. Um, but, um, you know, if you just Google National Science Force Network, um, there is a great website. They really help push forward the goals of uh, NSPN, and there are great advantages of being an NSPN member. There's a lot of professional development funds and opportunities, uh, grants, to do events in your chapter. So it really is great. Um, and it really, it really pushes you to, to try new things and to share your passion um, with other people that you've never met. So, so yeah, they can reach it there. 
And you can also uh, reach the Johns Hopkins Science Policy Group at jhsipogroup.org, uh, where we you know, have a little bit more information about ourselves. Um, we post our blog there. Um, so there's a way to contact us there if you want to become more involved. Thank you so much for joining us, Bernat, and sharing your perspectives on science policy. Thank you so much for having me. It was definitely a pleasure, and I hope this was informative for people. Yeah, this was really great. Thank you again, and we hope you stay safe and healthy, and all the best to you. Thank you. You too. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. I'm Roshan Chiggermain. I'm Jenna Glatzer. Thank you for listening. <laughs>